0: will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here, and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey, friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I am really glad you're here change and the grief that can often accompany it is an inevitable part of the human experience. But we don't often talk about how grief impacts our work and careers. We all experience it from life-altering ways of losing someone we love who is dear to us, but also in more subtle ways of grieving. Maybe something that's less tragic, but that has shifted your center of gravity. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's a job pivot. Uh, Maybe you were laid off. Maybe you chose to leave your job like I did. At its core, it is all about change. And even in the best of circumstances, change is not something that we're wired for. And when we think about our careers and how our lives evolve and change, grief often plays a really critical role. Now, I have been fascinated by this topic for some time, especially as it relates to the ways that change in our lives, including those that we initiate, as well as those that actually happen to us in the course of living, and how all of that can impact things like our identity. I actually found the perfect person to help us explore this further when I was introduced to psychotherapist Megan Reardon Jarvis. She is fantastic. Megan specializes in trauma, grief, and loss. And after experiencing PTSD personally, after the death of both of her parents within two years of each other. Megan launched a podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. And she began speaking out more widely on the topic of grief and change in order to help companies and individuals address grief in the workplace. Megan is also the author of a soon-to-be-released new book and memoir. It's called End of the Hour, which is available for pre-order in the show notes for this episode. It's episode 264. You'll find it right there in the show notes. It is being published by Zibby Owens. And if you aren't aware of Zibby, I encourage you to go to Instagram and follow her because her own story of how she's built this publishing business and why is incredibly inspiring. Plus, she is just great fun to follow. Megan and I, in the course of our conversation, actually talk a little bit about how she got to know Zibby and how her book came to be published. It's a great, great story. So I urge you to listen to the end of the episode so that you can hear the whole thing. Now, in thinking about today's topic, I was actually reflecting on my own career experiences. And I've often thought about how... Even when you decide to leave a job for something else, something that you're excited about, there can still be a component of grief and loss associated with that pivot. Uh, We miss the people that we've been working with. We will miss certain aspects of those jobs, even when we decide that this is a, a change that we need to make for either something that will challenge you more, Or because maybe the position that you're in is not serving your life as well, it's not working for yourself and your family in a way that actually makes sense anymore, whatever that may be. And then there's another element when we lose colleagues. Um, In my case, um, a mentor of mine passed away. This was about a decade ago, but a mentor of mine passed away while we were working closely together. And... Until the conversation, uh, this conversation with Megan, I'm not sure I had reflected as fully on all of the ways that the change and that loss of that person, how it affected the organization, and how how it affected me personally, how it affected my team, how it affected so many different things at different levels, and really understanding what that meant. Now, friend, I know you have no doubt had experience with all of this, with grief and loss of all different types. And so clearly, this topic will be very, very personal to you and to each of us who's listening. But I think you'll appreciate and find value in Megan's perspective and also in the tools that she talks about in our conversation. But before we jump in, I do want to draw your attention to three key topics that we talk about. The first is how the layers of grief can actually lay dormant and can sneak up often when we least expect it, how our grief can impact literally all aspects of our life and work from brain fog and anger to reduced productivity and strained relationships and difficulty making decisions, and the list goes on and on, and how we can learn to recognize those signs, and then know what to do when we begin to notice them. And this is true both for us personally and also as we think about colleagues that may be struggling through some type of loss in their own lives, learning to notice those changes in them and maybe offer that that help and assistance. And then number three, some of the tools that Megan recommends to begin to work through grief and trauma. So friend, wherever you are in your journey, I hope today's conversation provides you both some help and also some comfort for you and for those that you love. Here is my conversation with Megan Reardon Jarvis. Megan, welcome to She Said, She Said.
1: Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. Well,
0: I am really excited to have you. You and I had a great time getting to know each other about a week ago. And I think the biggest challenge with a conversation like this is that it can go in so many different directions. So my only request of you is I hope we'll have you back since we'll only spend about (laughs) half an hour, 40 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) But the topic that I want to dive into with you today is how we sometimes maybe overlook the role that grief can play as it relates to our career transitions. Mm
1: -hmm. So
0: why don't we start the conversation there and you provide some perspective on the role that grief plays as we're making these pivots?
1: I love that question. And if you will... If you will give me a little bit of rope to wax on philosophical, I'll tell you how I have been thinking about this question, particularly in relationship to the pandemic. So during the pandemic, people were unbelievably heroic in terms of making adjustments really fast. Our brain is actually wired to desire that we do not change, that we find predictable routes forward because it conserves energy, literal energy, electricity Mm -hmm. inside our system. And so if we can preserve it, we can do other things like, you know, innovate in certain ways. But if we can keep our patterns straight, that's good for us. And what the pandemic asked of us in our workplaces was like, take your computer home, figure out how to teach your kids, walk your dog, exercise and save the company from... Your living room. And, you know, people take Zoom for granted now, but most of us had not been on Zoom. I mean, I spent six months with my son's name in the bottom corner of my Zoom because (laughs) I didn't know how to change it. So we were working at this really sort of crisis level clip. And when we are working in crisis, Our brain is not curious. It's Mm. the limbic system is activated. You know, we often think about it like from a a military perspective of like when you're in the, on the battlefield, you're not writing poetry, you're just trying to stay alive. And so the parts of your brain that are activated during that time are the most um, instinctively responsive. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so what we had were people who were doing incredible things at a really fast clip but the challenge about the pandemic was it didn't end it hasn't ended it asked us to to make a significant level of change across all aspects of our lives like you know i think about all the people who were going to work was a respite from tensions at home mm-hmm. um going to work was a place where they got to be creative or you know parts of themselves got to in the office be different than, than, how they can otherwise be at home, and really, what happened was that crisis kind of burnt people out a bit, and you know that's really what burnout is. Burnout is you are outside of the window of tolerance that your system, that your central nervous system can handle for too long a period of time, and so rather than adapting with sort of your fight and flight responses, your brain goes into a state of sort of freeze. Hmm. So fight and flight come from the sympathetic nervous system, which is the activation system. So therapists like me, when you come into my office and you're really mad, I'm like, yeah, I get it. People don't like you to be mad, but that's kind of a good place energetically. That's where we can make some change. That's where we can do some things. We progress through those states. We do fight first always. We flee second. And if those two things are able to resolve our problems, we're usually in good shape. Where we get in trouble is when it switches to the other side of the brain, the parasympathetic nervous system, and we end up in freeze mm. and collapse. And freeze can be high freeze, like a deer in headlights, or freeze can be head under the covers, not getting out of bed. And that we know is where trauma sort of begins. Mm. And so what can also happen is, so in the pandemic, it was sort of like a time crunch, and then it, and then it was relentless. And and for many families, it has not totally let up. And we didn't go back, you know, we didn't go back to work and you can't go back to work because everything has changed since we were there before. We have to find a new way forward. But there's another way that we can get overwhelmed, which is like that cup that just like a thousand little drops of water. And I think for many people. That one is almost the more insidious women in particular Mm. who have done big pivots, right? Like they went into workplaces that were not totally inviting for them. They found their feet. They figured things out. Maybe they left to have children. Mm -hmm. So there's this big interruption. And generally what we do when we're making a proactive change is we say, like when I always think about this, when people are graduating from college, what we say is, are you so excited? or graduating from high school. Are you so excited? Like yeah, they're probably excited, but they may also be terrified and they may right. also be sad cuz most of their friends are still at school. We don't say, "Are you so excited and also sad?" Yeah. And also finding this hard. We just kind of like lay the pathwork of please be this way. Yeah. And when women leave to have babies, we, that's it. Like, "Oh, so great for your family." We rarely say like, "Wow, and are you also afraid of what it's going to mean for your career?" Even though every woman is thinking it. Right. Right. And so then with a baby or maybe a couple. She's mm-hmm. entering back into the workplace maybe at full time several years later. Yeah. Not everybody does that but many people do it. Mm-hmm. And there is so much that has changed and been lost in that process. And because we're not educated really about, you know, loss is is a totally natural system. It happens to everybody. And grief is just the energy that is created inside our bodies in reaction to loss. Mm -hmm. The same way when something's funny, we laugh. Or the same way that when something's scary, we have tension. So it's not a problem. It just is. But we, culturally, we don't love it. Mm -hmm. We don't educate about it. We kind of want people to do it over in a corner where it's not going to get on me. And so most people are not aware that what they are experiencing is grief unless someone died like two weeks ago. Right. And then it's like, Oh, no, I know I'm really sad about my aunt, but for many, many, many people, I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've had this example where someone has come in, a woman has come in and said to me, I've got this going on and this going on. And I just, you know, for like the last year, I really haven't been happy. And I say, did anything happen a year ago? It's like not even a great question. It's just curious. And so often someone will say to me, my mother died. Well, Mm. I don't think it's related. Mm. And the reason they don't think it's related is no one has told them that, of course, it's related. Yeah. That everything about the way that you feel in your life shifts when really important things change. So I think about, I was just doing a lecture in Memphis and somebody asked me a question. It was a great question. They said, can you grieve when your boss leaves and you get a new boss and you don't like them as much?
0: What a great question right? And I was
1: like, yes. I mean, I don't know if your workplace is going to be enthusiastic about it, but of course, I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you grieve if your neighbor, you know, who you loved moved out of town? Wouldn't you grieve if your brother moved to another country? And what happens for people when their boss that they loved leaves and they don't leave with that boss is it impacts every relationship that that, I didn't leave this company. I didn't make a change, but now there's a new person and he's telling me, I got to turn in my timesheets on Tuesday. And I used to do that on Monday and he's having all hands meetings and it's awkward and he's calling Tom Tim and it's just terrible and work used to be good and now it's terrible. Yeah. So those things happen and then we go home and we're sort of like irritable with our kids or irritable with our neighbor and we don't know why. Yeah. So what I, what, I, what I spend a lot of time doing with folks, and you and I talked a little bit about this, but particularly women who I feel like are doing nine things at any given time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, with the inception of phones, now we're doing 12 things. <laughs> I think what, what helps is to sort of slow it down, ask people to get into their body once a day. So to create a ritual where you set a timer, maybe it's even just three minutes long. I can do this while I'm driving, where I just start at the top of my head. And I always imagine it's like a can of paint. I don't know why, but I let the paint drip down me and it's magnetic in my mind. And so it's going to go towards anywhere that there's some energy. And then I just wonder about what that energy is. Mm -hmm. And when people say to me, what is a grief practice? That's a grief practice. Yeah. It's just checking to see if grief is active. And sometimes I'm not going to notice that it's grief. I'm just going to notice, oh, there's like some tension in my chest. Mm-hmm. And then I just sit with that tension for three minutes. And I say, just let me know what you need me to, to know.
0: So, So short of having had a really traumatic experience, you know, where you've lost something or someone that's very dear to you. What you're describing to me also sounds like it's a form of stress management because change is ever present, right? right. Sometimes it's big change, sometimes it's little change, sometimes it's lots of change all at the same time, but it's always happening. We change, the world changes, right? So what you're describing to me sounds like a practice for dealing with kind of all of that change. What I, what I also would love for you to talk about, and you kind of touched on this a a, a moment ago, is the impact of what happens in your career when you do experience some kind of major loss, something beyond just your boss leaving, even though that can be very traumatic. I've had an experience like that and those things can be traumatic, So hard. but let's say you lost someone very dear to you. Um. Obviously, it's going to have a huge impact on you, a huge impact on your ability to do your job, but maybe talk us through what that looks like and what we should be alert to.
1: It's such a good question. And I think like a really caring question about humans in the workplace, right? Because I think a lot of what we are looking at is like, you know, what is the, what is it that we do here and how can we do that the most efficient and make the most money And, you know, with the least amount of distress. I love this phrase, stress management that you just said a second ago. And I think it's also often partnered, right? Like if you flip open a magazine, it's like five ways to manage your stress. And then on the next page, there might be 10, 10 self-care ways, like stress management and self-care to me seem like two different sides of the same conversation. Mm -hmm. One is stress management is how am I going to keep my central nervous system and my body as neutral as possible, regardless of the outside forces? So what are my tools to do that? And I think that happens a lot at work. Mm -hmm. And then I think women recently have been given this tone of like, oh, well, if you're having stress, it's because you are not proactively doing enough self-care. Right. Have you had a lavender bath lately? <laughs> and, you know, I could really do without that crap. Like, I don't also need to be shamed. Stressful things are stressful. Right. And so, so I often find myself sort of have it like, what do you think is self-care? Like, do you think self-care is the ability, is, is you know, enough t- cups of tea or a walk with a girlfriend that you're never going to be impacted by those things? Um, And I, and I do think some people do, some people think, well, the only reason you're stressed is because you failed at your self-care and really what they are is self-care is just knowing that you want to always be trying to bring your central nervous system, your brain and your spine, which is what sends all the messages down into your body. And the body is built of 12 mechanisms, right? Like I won't list them all, but like your endocrine system and your respiratory system, all of those things are getting messages. It's like this loop. So what we do with self-care is we say, let's see if we can just cool down what's on the inside with stress management. What we're trying to do is not react too much to the storms that are around us. Right? So the first thing that we have to do when we go into a work environment where we are feeling stressed is get clear about what is stressful for us. And that may not, you know, this is personal, mm-hmm. right? It, mm-hmm. What may be really stressful to one person is not stressful to you. You, you know, when somebody redlines all your documents and you get it back and you're like, oh my God, I failed at this paper. Like, I don't mind being redlined. I don't care. You want me to write it differently? Who cares? I'm not invested in this. So being really clear about what is stressful for you, what is hard, what about this person is hard. Is there a historical reason? Did I have like a really demanding lacrosse coach when I was in high school and I was sort of developing my sense of self? And God, this guy talks to me. This new boss talks to me with that same tone of voice, getting as clear as possible because it's too simple to say this company sucks. <laughs> It's too now. I am not claiming that some companies don't suck. Right. There are some companies out there that suck. Both but things I also, can be true. Right. I have also worked with incredible companies where there are people who leave, you know, and leave their little glass door report. You know, mm-hmm. this is this company doesn't care about us at all. And the company looks at that and is like, I'm heartbroken that somebody could have felt that way. That was not my intention. Mm-hmm. So getting really clear about what's hard for you. Is it hard that people expect you to meet deadlines and actually you have some underlying ADD? Is it hard for you because people, you know, are taking this project is going to take six years and that's too long for you to feel like you have a win to just know what that is? Because when you are aware of what is stressful and why it's stressful, it informs some of the self-care. Right? So if you have too much anxiety at work, too much of the the sympathetic nervous system, too much activation, then actually let's get some lavender sachets and have that bubble bath at home. Bringing the parasympathetic nervous system online is awesome. But you may also be bored out of your mind at work, not feel useful, not feel like you matter, and an hour at a soup kitchen where you are concretely helping someone is going to be a much better form of self-care. But if we were to look at it and say like, well, you really, you come home from work drained and sad and unhappy. I don't know that we would immediately say like, oh, well, then you should go to your local soup kitchen. That will help. We have to be clear about what is the emotional experience. And I love telling people this because I feel like don't know i feel like i didn't learn this until late in my career that that emotions are these subconscious you are not aware little electrical currents that just run up and down your body Mm -hmm. and some people are I, i often feel mine like my legs feel a little cold right now and when i'm anxious i can feel some energy across my arms so people who have somatic responses are sometimes really aware of those emotional experiences but most of the time they're a little bit like clouds. They just come and go, Mm -hmm. but when they collect, they will get our attention. Right? So if I've been collecting irritation or disappointment, or at Mm -hmm. some point there's going to be enough inside my system that I'm going to be like, wow, God, I really, that guy is a jerk. I'm really Mm -hmm. disappointed. He didn't help me. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is emotions the electrical currents. There's a guy named Mark Brackett at the Center for Emotional Studies at Yale. He's done this amazing piece of work, sort of mapping where we feel them. And so people who know that work sort of know, like, oh, do you have tension in your lower back? That usually means something. Um, and and it's it's fascinating stuff to sort of learn, like, oh, that's where grief resides, mm. is in the lower back, and yeah, that's where. And so we have some data on that. It's fascinating, mm-hmm. but most people don't know it. And what happens is the emotional currents come and go and they just assign any word to it because we're not, we're not like fluent. Right. And so it's like a dart that they're throwing at an emotional dartboard and they're like, I'm angry. Mm-hmm. And so what a lot of people experience in therapy is, okay, you are aware of some tension in your body. So that feels like anger. hmm but let's check and see if there's any grief or sadness underneath because there often is. It mm. often sort of is masked by those things. And so when we assign the words to those electrical currents, that's when they become feelings.
0: Yeah.
1: And what's super challenging, particularly at work, where we are not really encouraged to have feelings or talk about our feelings, is that there's so much miscommunication between people on account of that. But imagine if you worked in a workplace where your boss said, hey, I just need you to know I'm disappointed. I thought I thought we were much more clear about this report. And now we're going to need to spend more time on it. What happened? As opposed to, I mean, Laura, are you doing anything? Are you working right now, Laura? You know, am I going to get this report by the end of the day? And you're right. like, he's, right. mad, he's mad at me? He's <laughs> mad at somebody else? Right. I don't know what's going on. And the reason people in sort of C-suite say that they don't convey that to their subordinates is that they don't really know what's going on for them themselves. Mm. They don't actually know that they're sort of disappointed. They're not like mad at you. They're not angry. They like you so much. They know you tried hard. They just wish you had done a better job. Yeah. And now it's going to be more work for them. And so being able to say to them, you're disappointed. Mm-hmm. People are disappointed at work all the time. It's not the end of the world, but also you shouldn't keep it inside you. you got to let the people know and it makes it safer.
0: Yeah. Yeah, right? absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I'd love for you to talk, sort of dig into another element of this, which is essentially those little seeds that oftentimes can become planted yeah. in childhood at, at some previous point. And maybe it's something that, you don't even realize, but that can resurrect (laughs) and show its ugly face way later, and you not even realize that the two things are connected. And I know you have a very powerful story, but I'd love for you to talk about sort of those traumatic seeds that are planted and how how those can take a lot of different forms. Anyway, maybe talk us through that.
1: So- essentially what you're talking about, what you're asking about is when we have trauma inside the system. So, and I'm just going to define this. Cause again, I think it's something that gets thrown around and people don't even trauma therapists. Sometimes I'm like, what do you think the definition of trauma is? So trauma is just an event. It's just a thing that happens. The pandemic was an absolute trauma. Mm. It was a disruption from the norm, but for many people, so, a, you know, a disruption from the norm. We assume that it's negative, but like giving birth is also a trauma. You know, your body doesn't do that every day. When, it, when we become traumatized, the event takes on a negative meaning, a limiting meaning. Something that we once had more expanse with and more possibility has gotten smaller. Mm. And so our life is slightly less on account of this perceived meaning. And what happens for kids, particularly under the age of 10, and the reason we say under the age of 10 is that your brain begins to develop a, more of a reflection, more, more ability to sort of look at your behaviors at 10. But previous to that, kids are so narcissistic. You know, when their friend moves to Cleveland, they kind of think it's on account of them. That is how the mind works. And so when something bad happens, mom and dad gets divorced. Even though intellectually when I'm in college, I know it wasn't my fault. I mean, my dad was, you know, sick and my mom was cheating or whatever. I still emotionally think it's my fault Mm. because children are the cause of everything in their own worlds because they do not have the reflecting intellect to see the possibility that we then see when we're much older. Mm. And the difficulty is, that that meaning gets tucked inside you and it doesn't get challenged. It doesn't get supported. And so it stays there with the intellect of a 10-year-old. So I'll give you an example. It's not a work example, but it's um, it's so powerful in my life still. When I was in fifth grade, I was pretty bullied by kids around me. Um, and I opened my desk one day to a note that said, we hate you. And it had the names of every single person in my class, my little class in the school that I went to. And I just remember it. And I remember thinking, like, I can't go to this school anymore. And also, I can't tell my mother that this happened. So I'm really stuck. And I wrote about it. I wrote about what that was like. And I, you know, so many people have experiences with bullying. The article blew up and a woman who was in my class wrote to me and said, I remember that note and I didn't sign it. Oh, wow. But her name was definitely on the note. I actually took it home and checked it against this class list. So I said, well, your name was on the note. And she said, well, then the two girls who made that note put my name on it. Oh. And I was like 37 years old. Oh, my God. And I burst into tears because that had not occurred to me for one second. Wow. And of course, that's what happened. These two little shitty girls who wanted to make me feel terrible- had written everybody's name on this note, but I was 37 before that even presented itself as a possibility because I took it in with the mind of an 11 year old. Right? So that is what can happen is that we can take on these little things that we are not conscious of. And we don't even know they're there until something happens in our adult life and people are looking at us, or we may even know it ourselves. God, this is really getting under my skin Hmm. and everybody else it's, you know, they're annoyed, but they're not like losing sleep over it, going to the manager about it. They're just like, well, it's unfortunate. Yeah. And when we have an outsized reaction, that is a good moment to do that three minute timer and, and really get curious, like Sherlock Holmes, like go inside your experience and just wonder when have I felt like this before? What is this feeling? When have I felt like this before? All the way back, what's the earliest age? What is it that I might've needed then? Can I, as an adult, give that to myself now? Because usually it's just some form of really deep compassion and understanding Yeah, that you didn't mean for that outcome, that you wanted to be included, that it hurt your feelings, that you felt alone, that you wanted to matter. And most of us as adults are running around with little like splinters of that. In our system, still.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about, or go a little bit deeper into some of the tools. I know you teach a a, a grief, or have you've taught a grief grief writing. Um, course yeah. of, of yeah. sort. Of, I don't know if you call it a course, but it's a, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a, a, course. It's a yeah. course or a workshop yeah. um, that you lead. Let's talk about some of the tools that you have developed. And I also want to talk about your new book, which will be coming out okay. later yeah. in the fall. We're going we've included a link in the show notes where folks can pre-order that, but let's talk first off about the tools.
1: Yeah. So, so one of the things that was really transformative to me, um, when I went into therapy was not only discovering that my own outsized reactions that were connected to my childhood experience with a death in my childhood that was never spoken about, that that didn't have to be the definition of who I was as a person, right? Like somebody who, I don't know, burps really loud or laughs really loud or, or sleeps through the phone ringing. Like we just say, yeah, that's something they do. That's just like a quirk or a thing about them that when, when we're trying to take a look at someone's life and say, Hey, what can we shift or pivot or change for you? What we want to be able to do is sort of like with compassion and love, say, what is it like right now? Let us understand it. Oh, and what I always say to people is that's adaptive, that's adaptive behavior. Mm. The, the system you came up with made a lot of sense. Like you stealing food that made a lot of sense. You, you know, throwing punches at your stepfather, that made a lot of sense. But also, you don't need to steal food now. And you don't need, your stepfather's not here, so you don't need to throw any punches. And usually that moment, there's some grief work we need to do, right? Because grieving is the part of like letting go of that energy. Mm. That's the energetic response to what we've been holding on to. And so if we're going to let it go, we're going to let go of that old story, we need to be able to grieve it. So when I'm working with individual clients, what we will do is come up with some sort of ritual, some sort of, you know, when we let go of things, we usually like to let go of them into the universe. So we might burn it. We might bury it. We might drown it in water. Um, and, and, you know, however, what we, what I do is I just sort of ask, and then what would you like to have happen? And sometimes the things like I've had people say to me, like, oh, I I just imagined Hagrid would come in on a dragon and like (laughs) burn the paper. Like, great. Well, let's just keep imagining that. So some of what we do is practical and real. And some of it, we just use our imaginations. Mm. And the interesting thing is it doesn't matter what you do. It's equally as powerful. And there are some things, particularly when it comes to writing. So, so I do write a, I do run a grief writing workshop and, the reason I run this grief writing workshop is that memoir is usually a grief story. In my experience, it's Mm. usually a transformation story, right? Like a hero's journey. And it requires people to go back to moments of trauma, of real pain of, of where we didn't know how bad it was going to be. And the challenge with that is unsupported. You can accidentally re-traumatize yourself. Mm. You can go back into the story and be just as scared as you were before. And so what we do is it's almost like sailing a boat and and tethering the sails, right? Like the water is going to move us on its own. Cause it's really stormy. We do not need all of the, you know, the sheets and all of the, so we furl them up and we batten them down and we let the boat go where it needs to go. And we, Keep indicating like you are not on this ship alone. And so what that looks like is bringing up some memory and really titrating it very carefully. And just asking, are you still at a a six? Are you higher than a six? Is it okay? Do you need something? And so I've only ever taught this class on Zoom, but I have worked with some writers who are like, you know, I feel, I feel like maybe I'm headed into like, I'm going to get dysregulated. It's going to be too much for me. Hmm. And the difficulty with trauma dysregulation is it can take you out of the knees and then like, you need to sleep the whole rest of the day. Like if we accidentally let you get too dysregulated, what that can mean is you can't go back to work hmm. or, you know, you're not going to eat the next couple of days. So it so we can't always keep it in regulation, but what we, so we have some tools. So one of them might be, and I use this a lot with writers is I want you to imagine my hand over your hand. And so sometimes I will ask people to get bean bags so that you can actually feel the sensation. Like I just want you to still feel my hand on your hand so that you know you're not by yourself. If people start to get cloudy and they start to dissociate, because that's a tool that the body uses to kind of like pop the parachute and evacuate the the boat altogether, it will start to cloud you and you lose your train of thought. That happens a lot to writers. What I will do is sort of pull them back with some grounding techniques and say, can you take your shoes off, put your feet on the ground and rub your feet on the carpet? And while you're doing that, I want you to look around and I want you to tell me, Four things that have the letter A in them. I want you to pick something that you can see that's yellow. And really all it's doing is taking you out of the memory and bringing you back into the present moment and being aware that you're okay in the present moment. The memory that you're having is not, it's just a memory. You've already survived this. Hmm. And that's a mantra I use with a bunch of my writers, which is remember you have already lived through and survived this. Hmm. And if you never write it down, that's okay. Right? So that just sort of encouraging people, I believe you can. I believe there's purpose in that. And a lot of the class is called process to product because for a number of people, just the process of writing out a narrative that they can then say without, you know, when my mom died, I couldn't even say the word she died. Mm. I couldn't get them out of my mouth. I didn't have any language that my central nervous system was so dysregulated. I had no words but I can say it now. And I can say she died suddenly in her sleep, but I had to work to get there. And part of what we know from neuroscience is that the actual pathways of your brain in some of that trauma are damaged. And when you take a pen and a piece of paper and you write the story of what happened to you, your brain relaxes. It doesn't have to keep holding tight to it. And the reason the brain holds tight to hard stories is it never wants you to experience them again. So it is scanning to make sure that we are not headed towards any of those coves and hmm. you know shorelines. But if you write it down, it's like, look, I made a map. You don't have to keep orienting yourself to this story. If we need this map, I'll pull it up. Yeah. And it and it refuses the neural pathways. It it allows us, and those neural pathways are not just holding our memories. They're also generating all the things like are we sleeping, eating, resting? able to have a conversation with people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mentioned the fact that you have this fabulous book that's coming out in November. Um, You had an interesting experience in finding your publisher, which I'd love for you to, to, to share that with us because I think that's so interesting.
1: I did. I did. So my book, End of the Hour, which is the subtitle is A Therapist Memoir, is the story of my Um, both, it both describes the trauma in my childhood, which I did not know for most of my life was so relevant, um, until I went to therapy and sort of learned what it means to live through a childhood trauma. And then my, the process of my dad who was diagnosed in 2016 with small cell cancer, which is a death sentence, my experience of sort of drinking small cups of grief and loss with him and his death. And over the course of a year, as, as opposed to my mother who died of a short illness while I was on vacation with her, she went to sleep and didn't wake up. And so the story sort of outlines those series of experiences and gives you both sort of a clinical education, but from a griever's mind. So it's not clinical. I don't use lots of language. I just sort of, you know, make sure that I tell the stories that I have heard so many times. From my voice, you know, the things that grievers struggle with is what I struggled with. And I checked myself into the same inpatient facility that my clients did. So um, I came out kind of, you know, I always say it's like you can study France, but this is, you know, it's having Mm -hmm. studied France and then you go there and you're like, oh, this is what you mean about how the bread tastes. You know, you can't get that from a book. So my publisher is Zibi Owens, mm. Zibi Books. So Zivi is an extraordinary force for good in the world of writing and books. And um, when I started writing, I really was writing more in the process. I was writing for myself. I wasn't really thinking about a product. And zibby, I was really still grieving when the pandemic began. Um, my mom had been dead about six months and I was really struggling to find things that were novel because you do need to do new things in order to get your footing Mm -hmm. because you can't go back. So you got to go forward. And a friend of mine from high school saw that I had posted that I was reading Danny Shapiro's inheritance on my Instagram and was like, Oh my God, I love this book. And she reached out and said, Hey, that author is going to be at this book club that I go to on Tuesdays at one o'clock. Do you want to come? And at that time, Zibby was running a book club that was every Tuesday, and she was inviting the author for the last 30 minutes. Now it's once a month, but mm-hmm. at, during the pandemic, it was every Tuesday, which meant I was reading some kind of unbelievable story of loss because primarily we were reading memoir. Yeah. Because Zibby loves memoir. So, and then in the process, her mother in law died of COVID. Mm. And she started to have some of the symptoms that we're talking about. So just like you do in life, you, you know, you start to, Oh, that person's an osteopath. I want to, got to ask about my bones. So she, um, she started to communicate with me and we had this little friendship and I, I mean, going to this class that I took once a week became a real anchor Mm. to my mental health, the reading of the books and the going and the discussing and being curious I wasn't a big memoir reader and sort of long story short, Zibi knew I was writing. And I, 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 I think I mentioned it in the, in the class. She read some of that writing and then she, you know, she is a force to be reckoned with. So I think I do a lot. She does 90 times what I do in a day. She wrote to me, she wrote me an email. It was right before Christmas. I had just said somewhere in a blog post, like I may turn this into a memoir. And she wrote me a note and the whole note said, do you think you have a memoir in you? Do you want to write it for my new, at that time, what she was considering doing was, was just having her own press at, you know, her own um, imprint at a press. And I showed it to my husband. I was like, what do you think this means? He was like, I think it means what the words say, which is. She's offering you the opportunity to write a book. Amazing. And I just was like, I don't even know. But I really really believe in sort of the universe handing you teacups. Mm. And and what I say about Zibi a lot is that she really changed my life because the way I thought about getting a book um, published was immediately dysregulating. Like so many people, the process that they go through because this is the way that it is like, you know, they query agents for, I, I didn't know what querying meant when I was writing. Like, I, you know, right. they query agents. That is a horrifying rejecting process. I was not in a place where I could have been rejected a lot. Mm-hmm. And then your agent tells you to rewrite the whole thing from beginning to end. And then, you, you know, then it gets sent to a publisher and then it gets. But what Zibby did instead was she said, here is the opportunity to write a memoir. And here is an editor who's going to work with you as you write it. And that person was Carolyn Murnick. And I handed her a pile of insanity. And she was like, this needs to have an arc and a thread. And let me. So she basically was, she was my fine arts degree teacher. Yeah. And, and that's what I did. So for two years, I worked on that. And, and I'll just never forget. I was in England with my family and she called and she was like, "Yes, yeah. so I started a publishing company and we would like to buy your book. Wow. And I was like, like, it was July 4th. I was like, wait, I'm sorry, what? She was like, yep, we're going to send you a contract. And that is not a publishing story that very many people get to have. Right? That is just, you know, it's like discovering that you have a fairy godmother. And, and that is really who she's been. She has started a publishing company that is unlike anything that anyone, you know, and where I needed community. Mm-hmm. She has just met, you know, I'm really, really good friends with many of the other zibby authors. Mm-hmm. Some who have already published, some who are going to publish, um, and they have made the hard process of writing. Everything about writing is hard. I actually love the editing process. People hate that part. I love it. To me, it feels like therapy. Yeah. The person is like, what I think you're trying to say is this. And like, Oh yeah, actually I can say that in far fewer paragraphs. So, so that I love what I've found trickier is the way that you end up having to sell a book that, um, you know, I'm almost 50 and I have been a, therapist since I was 27 and a good therapist, well-respected, knew I was doing good work because when people come in sick and they leave better, you get to say, I helped with that. It is a really wildly humbling thing to be like, I'm just going to pivot and step into this totally established world with people who speak languages and have traditions that I know nothing about Mm -hmm. and hope it goes okay for me. And every single day I fail at something, every single day I learn something, and every single day I feel wildly self-conscious like a teenager who's like, I don't know, can I wear this blue sequin dress? I have no idea. (laughs) Um, But I really wouldn't have it any other way because I think it's how I survived the pandemic actually. And I think it's how I survived. You know, I I think the hardest task of grieving is to create new Mm. in your life. Mm. And Zibby really, I have chills when I'm saying this, but she really just handed that to me like a present, like here, here is the new that you could do. It's going to be hard and it's going to be all encompassing and it's going to be intense and it's going to require a lot of you. And it was a perfect match for me. Yeah.
0: Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful story. And what a beautiful interview. I have loved this so much. You have to come back when the book is out because we've got lots more that we can talk about. But I really, really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you, Laura. This is just a joy. I said to you when I met you the other day that I felt like we could, you know, have a sleepover and just talk all night. For this sure. For really, really sure. Really, great. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for making time for me and for the book and for the story and asking such great questions.
0: Oh, my That's pleasure. And thank you for sharing all of it, all of it with us. Hey, friend, I would love your feedback on today's episode. And I'd love to hear anything that you're comfortable sharing about your own journey, your own experience with change and grief and loss. You can reach me on any of the social media channels, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or threads. You'll find me at Laura Cox Kaplan, or you can send me an email directly if you prefer. You can reach me at info at media. Remember, friends. She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media. Until next week, you take care and I'll talk to you again real soon.